Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, I don't know when you're allowed to stop saying, when you have to stop saying that really, Happy New Year, we're five days in, but it's the first Sunday at church, so I figure I can go for it. I'm, I love a new year. Um, once I've got over the um, sadness maybe of the year past and, oh, it went so quickly and I've all the nostalgia that I have about that, I get very excited about the new year. A chance to look over what's happened, a chance to look ahead um, as what's to come and kind of hope and pray for my year ahead. So when you get asked to speak on the first Sunday of the year, of the decade, 2020, which I've heard people call the Roaring Twenties, which I quite like. I don't know if anyone else heard that, but um, it's a dream. So I'm not one to miss the opportunity um, to go big and setting us up for the year. So that's what I'm going to do today. Um, And then the second thing that happily coincided with this Sunday is, I don't know how well acquainted you are with the church's calendar. I'm particularly, not particularly familiar, but does anyone know what is tomorrow, the 6th of January? Epiphany, that's more people than you at the morning service. Very good. Epiphany, which is when we celebrate the wise men, the magi coming to, to see Jesus um, in, the, in the nativity story, which is in Matthew 2. So that's what we're going to look at today, um, Matthew 2, and see what we can learn, what God might want to be saying to us about what the year ahead might hold um, through that passage. So if you've got a Bible... As always, they are um, in the back of your pews. Open to Matthew 2, and we're going to look at verse 1 to 11. All right. So I'm going to read from potentially a different version. I don't know. Yeah, it's a different version to what's on there, but hopefully not too different, so don't get too confused. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is so written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold... The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So the main players in this story are the wise men, and that's who we celebrate coming at Epiphany. Now, I googled um, Epiphany because I needed to find out what it was, so I've really told you what it was, but the second thing that might be interesting to you is Epiphany is the day when you're meant to have your Christmas decorations down. So if you haven't put your Christmas decorations down yet, your trees or your lights or whatever, then tomorrow's your day. I don't know who made that rule, um, so I personally probably won't listen to it, but also I read that in the 15th and 16th centuries, um, you were allowed to keep them up till February the second so you can make the choice the church probably we probably need to get these down at some point by tomorrow apparently but actually the wise men when we look at epiphany and we see who they were they've been 
discussed over lots of years, and theologians and historians have lots of different views on who they were. You've probably been to nativities where you see three wise men. It's actually completely inaccurate, apparently. And the only reason that there are sometimes said to be three is because gold, frankincense, and myrrh, three gifts. Um, but other than that, people seem, seem to think that they were actually a tribe of people, so much more than necessarily three. Where did they come from? Well, we're told in the passage that they came from the east. So east of Jerusalem could have been anywhere in Asia. Um, but a lot of evidence seems to suggest that they came from Persia, um, and particularly Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq and Iran. Now, they were a very influential group of people. In some translations, they're called the Magi. And the Magi were this group of people who um, would advise the royal household. They would um, give them their thoughts, they would give them direction for where to go, what to do. They were seen to be holy, and they were seen to be wise men, which is where we get the name wise men from. Particularly, they were skilled in things like philosophy or natural sciences. And for this story, um, it's particularly important, they were skilled in astrology, which, if any of you know, is the study of the night sky and of stars. So they would look at the night sky and they would write down the constellations and they would look at how the stars relate to each other and how they're moving and where they're going. And from that, they would decide and tell people um, signs not only for the future, but also read the signs of the time, what was happening in their current situations. And from that, they would then write out the universe's order. So they believed that if they looked up at the night sky and they looked at how the stars relate to each other, that would tell them something about the order of the universe. And linked to that, they believed that if God, whichever God that was, they weren't part of the Jewish race, so I'm not sure what God they would have believed in, but if God um, wanted to do something completely different in their time, that he would write that in the stars, that in the sky they would see something that would completely change the course of history. So imagine them there for a second. They're on the top maybe of their palace or wherever they are. They wouldn't have had, obviously, like telescopes and stuff. But they would have been writing on their parchment night after night, looking at the night sky, writing down where the stars are, if they've moved maybe a tiny millimeter, I guess. But they're expecting to see something. They've read the prophecies. They've read, they were well-learned, as I said. They've read what the historians and what the prophets had written about the times. They knew that something might come into that sky, that something, a message might come from God. And suddenly one night, they see something different. Now, we're not really sure what they might have seen. It says in the passage a star, but I don't know what it could have been, you know, a shooting star or whatever it was. But they obviously saw something that was so significantly different to what they were used to that they dropped everything and they traveled across a desert to go and follow that star. Now, we're not talking, well, I wasn't sure. Are we talking a quick trip down the road, five minutes? Makes the story slightly less exciting and impressive. Google Maps, great help for this. So I put in, for the sake of the exercise, we'll imagine they came from Babylon. So I put in Babylon in modern-day Iran, as I learned. Your Middle Eastern um, geography might be much better than mine, but Google Maps was helpful for me here. Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, it's 1,100 kilometers, which if you were to get in a car nowadays, it would take you between 15 and 16 hours to drive, depending on whether you go north or south. Now, obviously, they didn't have cars, and they were on camelback. So I thought, I'd like to find out a bit about camels. How long would it take on a camel to get from Babylon to Jerusalem? Now, first of all, 
you know how Google can get you a little bit sidetracked. I found out a few facts about camels, which I'll share with you, just because. Um, the first fact is that they have three eyelids and two sets of eyelashes to be able to see through sand. Very good, considering the fact that they live in desert conditions. Secondly, their humps can have up to 36 kilograms of fat and water in it. And that can sustain them for weeks and even months. And apparently, um, when their humps, when the 36 kilos begin to be used up by them, their humps kind of slouch to the side a little bit. They're just like, sad, really. But then I guess they know it's time to find some more food and some more water. My personal favorite is that in breeding season, males drool significantly in order to attract the females. So boys, <laughs> if last year your tactics didn't work, maybe try a few draws. Worked for Colin, so, way. <laughs> Lovely laugh. Anyway, back to the um, distance and question at hand. If you're wondering, they can get up to 65 kilometers an hour, which is 40 miles an hour. Now, bearing in mind um, the speed limit in a city, I think is 30. I'm looking at Colin. Oh, 20, okay in Islington. Well, anyway, double the speed limit in Islington, um, which you can get caught for very easily, apparently. Um, they can go up to that at, at their fastest. So I'm sure that that isn't a very comfortably sustainable um, speed for them. So I wondered, well, what would be a comfortably sustainable speed for a camel? Google, again, comes to our rescue, because apparently someone else is very interested in this and asked online, how long would it take a camel to walk a mile on flat land in a straight line going at its normal speed? Now, James Fitzpatrick, who lives in Thailand, <laughs> answered, and he let us know that all the camels he has ever ridden have walked at a human pace, which he estimates to be about five kilometers an hour, which for your reference is three miles an hour. So now we find ourselves with some kind of mass equation, which mass was never my strong, my strong point. Um, so there's a high chance that my calculations are wrong, um, but if I say it with confidence, you'll believe me and don't let me know if it is wrong. But based on this, if you're going 1,100 kilometers in distance at five miles an hour, it will take you 220 hours to make that journey. So they traveled 220 hours on what I'm informed is a very um, uncomfortable form of transport. I've never personally ridden a camel, but I imagine it's uncomfortable. Um, to find this king, to follow this star that they had read into the star, the message that a king of the Jews was going to be born. So they left everything, they jumped on a camel, and they traveled to find the king. And he's not even their king. This is what we celebrate at Epiphany. We celebrate the wise men who represent the Gentiles, so the non-Jewish world, and them coming to meet Jesus. That's all of us. None, well, some, some of you might be Jewish. I don't know. I'm not Jewish. The majority of us probably aren't Jewish. Um, Jesus revealed to us as a baby. And in that sky, God sent that message, the message that was clear for them who had been looking for it. They had eyes to see it. They had been expecting to see it. And there they were, they set off what they thought they were looking for, the king of the Jews, to go and meet this king of the Jews, to go and worship him. And what did they actually find? They found God in human form, God incarnate. And I'm particularly struck here by that willingness, that willingness to see something and drop it and go. And I don't know about you, but when I find that I think I maybe heard God say something or someone's given me a word, 
I'm quick to kind of tamper it down or question it or second guess it, especially if it's something that might have a significant impact on my life. I'm definitely not quick to jump on my metaphorical camel and travel halfway across the desert to go and pursue whatever God has said. But here they are. They drop everything and they go to follow. And I love this here, what it tells us about what God, um, how God speaks to us, but also about how our heart posture can be. God spoke to those wise men in a way that they would understand, in a way that was familiar to them. Like I said, they were astrologers. They spent every day, every night studying the sky, studying the stars. They knew it well. It was their trade. And that's where God spoke to them. Now, if God were to put a star in the sky for me one day, chances are I would have no idea what it meant. Or I'd mistake it maybe for a plane or a satellite or something. Or actually in London, light pollution, probably wouldn't even see the star. Um, But God speaks in amazing ways. So maybe one day he will speak to me through a star. But God created us and God knows how to speak to us. And he knows what the word that we need to hear, the way we need to hear it, when we need to hear it. I remember a few years ago, I was at a conference um, and there was this big American guy speaking and he was like crazy prophetic. So you know that prophetic where they look in your eyes and you think they're just going to like download everything about you in that one moment because they seem to have such a like wire to, to God. And he was telling stories about um, how he kind of sat on a plane next to someone and he'd had a word for them and um, it changed their life and then they became a Christian. And amazing stories, terrifying to me, terrifying to me. And I was at a point in my life, I was in my third year of uni, and um, I was really desperate to hear God's voice on a few decisions that I was trying to make. Um, so I was really like open to God speaking. And at this conference, he began to do that thing where he points people out and he gets them to stand up and then he'll speak a word over them. Now, for me, that, again, terrified me. I was scared of being exposed, of being embarrassed, of everyone hearing whatever it was that God wanted to say to me in that moment. And so, you know, when you sit there, like, with low-level anxiety, like, please, not me, please, not me, don't look at me. But equally, God, I really want to hear from you. So maybe, ah, I don't know. Anyway, we got through the kind of first burst of, like, prophetic activity, um, And we went into worship, and I'm standing there, you know, immersed in worship, um, and I feel this tap on the shoulder, and it's this very large American man, Um, (laughs) very large, Um, (laughs) and he says, I have a word for you, can I share it? And um, so I said, yes, please, and so he shared this word for me, and he prayed for me. Now, I can't for the life of me remember what that word was. I'm sure it was very profound, and I'm sure it, you know, at the time was very great direction, everything. I've got it written down somewhere. But what I do remember is that I felt like God spoke to me in that moment and said, I know you. I'm not going to expose you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to lead you in a way that is going to make you feel uncomfortable. I love you. All I ask from you is that you have an open heart and an expectant heart to hear me. And I really feel like that's what God wants to speak partly through this passage is I feel like God for, um, I feel like he's saying for us as a community, as us for a church, but also for us as individuals, that he wants to up our expectancy, up our faith levels for what he wants to do. He doesn't ask us to do anything other than have open hearts, to have a hunger and expectancy for all that he wants to do in and through us. And we see that in the wise men. They were expecting to see something different. They were expecting to have a message, and God spoke to them. Who knows how long they've been waiting there, putting putting themselves in that place night after night, year after year, maybe generations before them, waiting for for that message in the sky, and then God came through and he spoke. 
And sometimes God speaks into our situation. We're in a season where he speaks that really directional, um, that really directional word. And maybe you're in a season right now where you, that's what you need to hear. You, you're grappling with decisions. You've got things on your mind. And you're saying, God, I need to hear you. Or maybe you know that he has spoken and he said something to you in the past. And you've been waiting and you've been waiting for that time to come, for that thing to come to pass. All he asks from us is to have expectancy. Other times he whispers into our every day, you're loved. Keep going. I've chosen you. My parents have a Labrador, a little, um, well, she's not so little anymore, she's three years old, a yellow lab. Um, and we all agree, my whole family, that she is incredibly stupid. So we've had three in my lifetime, black, brown, and yellow, in case you're wondering. We've had the whole collection. Um, and she is, unfortunately, by far, um, the dimmest of them all. Um, I think Labrador's are meant to be quite intelligent, but anyway, not her. She's just so incredibly unaware of what's going on around her. So this happened over Christmas. I was cooking or doing something in the hob and you know something drops down onto the floor so there she comes and um, she eats whatever it is and then she stays there and she's kind of in between your legs and she's sniffing around and oh so annoying anyway what she won't realize is that on the other side of the living room my sister is ready to play with her with one of her toys Evie come play come play or that my dad is at the back door saying Evie do you want to go for a walk ready for a walk or that someone else is actually on the other side of the room with a better treat, saying, here, we've got a treat for you. All because she's got her nose to the ground, looking for the thing that she thought she could get again. Now, that's a stupid example. But I know that we can obviously sometimes be a bit like Evie, where we have our noses to the ground. And it might be for good reason. We might be still so caught up in what God was doing in the last season for us that we don't raise our, our eyes and look around to what he might want to be doing in a new season. Or maybe we're just so focused and distracted by all that's around that all we can do is focus on the one thing that's in front of us. We don't need to go through the list of work, uni, assignments, deadlines, friends, phones, all the things that distract us and keep us in the busyness of life. But that's what expectancy does. Expectancy raises our eyes, raises our heads. It raises our noses from the ground to see all the other things that might be happening around us, all the other things that God might be wanting to do around us. And I'm not talking about expectations here. There's a bit of a difference between expectation and expectancy. Expectations is maybe when we come to God and we say, God, here are the five things that I want for this year. Would you bless them? Would you do it? And in some ways, there's nothing wrong with that. When we bring those things to God and we say, Lord, these are the things on my heart. And God puts things on our heart. And he speaks to us. But he asks us to surrender them to him and hold them with open hands. And expectancy is a heart posture. It's a heart posture of saying, God, I'm open to whatever you want to do in and through me this year. Are we expecting to hear his voice this year? Are we trusting that he has good things for us? That he's not going to embarrass or expose us or disappoint us? expectations can lead us to disappointment because they might go unfulfilled. But expectancy always leads to joy because he will always move. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So when we read on there in the passage, we see where the star leads. 
like I said, they got this message in the, in the sky that the king of the Jews had been born. And what they didn't realize was that that star was going to lead to God himself. That star was going to lead to Jesus as a baby. And when they make it to, uh, to Bethlehem, they find that new family. And what an unexpected scene that must have been. God is the God of the unexpected. They'd just been to, to the palace in Jerusalem, full of glory and jewels and all the food and drink that they could have ever wanted with Herod. And then they come to Bethlehem to find this king. And he's in this backwater town of Bethlehem with a teenage mother in a poor house. What an unexpected scene to find. Not only have they found their, their destination finally, we read that they're filled with great joy. Probably there's joy because they finished their journey. But when we see Jesus, when we meet Jesus, we're filled with joy. They'd found God, God in human form, God incarnate. He was with them and they were with him. And we read them, what's their only possible response is to bow down and worship him and to give him all that they have. They give him their gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Because it's always been about relationship. When we come to Jesus, it's always been about relationship. The love that drew him to this earth, to come to, into this earth as a vulnerable baby. The love that sent him to, to die a brutal death on the cross. It's always about him. And when we find true joy and we fall to our knees in worship and we give him all that we have, we draw close to him and him to us. So what does it look like starting with this expectancy and expectation into the new year? Well, they were seeing this sign and they didn't know what it was going to be. And of course, when they found the new baby in Jerusalem, things went, went differently to what they had planned in Bethlehem. Like I said, God is a God of the unexpected. But in order to hear his voice and to follow his spirit to where he's going, we need to create space. We need to be attentive to how he might want to speak and be ready to change course when he calls us to. And I don't know about you, but I find it incredibly hard to be attentive to his voice when I'm in the busyness of life. All those distractions we talked about, they might just be your phone, Netflix, actual like deadlines, work, all those things. They distract us from what's in front of us, Jesus in front of us. They keep our noses to the ground. And so I've become increasingly convinced that we need to create time and space. And the ancient Christian writers, and if you read anything from um, anyone who's of any value as a Christian writer, they will point to um, spiritual disciplines as well as a way of not a formula A plus B equals C and we'll get what we want or we'll get to the place we want to get to, but rather because they create space. They create the space for us to lift our eyes to see what God might want to be saying. They create space to spend time in his presence and to stop and be filled with his Holy Spirit. And in particular, I think the two that really came to mind for me um, are silence and solitude. Creating space, taking ourselves away from all other people where it's just us and God. Where we turn off all the distractions, where we put aside all the things that take our attention every day and every moment of every day. We move aside from the whirlwind of our lives and it's just us and God. And let's just quickly look at two ways that might work out. One for our everyday and then one now at the beginning of the year for the big picture. So Pete touched on it um, in the notices, but spending time in scriptures every day, taking that time, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, whatever it is that works for you at this point, 
And bread is the perfect opportunity to do that. Like Pete said, if you haven't started doing that yet, get involved. It's so easy. You will be able to buy the journals. The um, version app, you can just download it and find it on there, or you can get the PDF from um, our website. Don't let this opportunity pass you by as we walk through this as a community. Because that is the place where we can be filled with his spirit. It's our equivalent of looking into the night sky day after day, night after night, of expecting a message from God, expecting God to speak through a star into our everyday, opening the scripture, opening his word where he promises that he will speak, putting ourselves in that place every day. And whether you've been reading the Bible for years or you've never even picked one up, um, and if you haven't ever picked one up, feel free to take one from the aisles um, and take it home from you and start at Matthew. Um, But let's get stuck into this together. This will truly change your life. It's been one of the greatest and richest things, disciplines that I've done in my life as I dig into the scriptures day after day and let myself be formed by them and by God's voice. Because then we will not just operate out of a place of rest, out of that place of real deep rest with the Lord that he puts into us every day. But it will also form us and send us out in his power, in the power of the Spirit, to be agents of his kingdom, to carry his kingdom into every situation that we're going through every day. But also this is the perfect time of the year to take stock of all that's passed, to look back on the year that's gone, zoom out from our days, zoom out from our um, noses being on the ground and look at the big picture. You might want to go and look back on what's happened over the last year, over 2019. What have been the highs, the lows? What are the disappointments or the joys? And I'm sure for all of us, there's been a mixture of all of those things. And when we recall those things and the way in which God has worked in our lives and his goodness and his faithfulness and his love, it raises our faith levels. It raises our expectancy for what he might want to do this coming year. And that's not just about setting goals or New Year's resolutions, although I am a fan of those also. Um, But this is about creating space, creating um, a space for us to be formed by his spirit. I personally try and do this at the beginning of every year, and um, we, I usually do it. We go to Ireland over New Year's to see Colin's family, and um, other than sheep and green fields, there's not much else to do. So um, it's the perfect opportunity, just with your Bible and your journal, uh, to do not much else. Um, but having looked back over the year that's passed, prayed over the things that God might have spoken to me in the year before, reflected over all that he's done, I then like to look forward and ask him for what he might want to do in this year to come. And for me, for years, I've been um, asking God for a a word for my year. So it's looked like different things. Sometimes it's been um, maybe a word that has been like a focus for the year, so something he wants to challenge me in or something that he wants to develop in me. Or maybe it's been a word of encouragement, something that he um, will do that year and that he wants to grow in me. And it's always been um, really cool then to look at, look at the end of the year and look back and see how he's been faithful in that. And um, this year, my word for 2020 is gratitude. And um, over Christmas, while I was reading scripture one day and I was praying, I felt like God um, spoke to me about how all the things that I'm praying for in my life, for him to cultivate in myself, in my spirit, joy, love, hope, peace, that those things will grow organically when I focus on gratitude. When I focus on thanking him for the things I have, for the things that he's given me, for the things that he's done in my life, instead of um, being sad about the things that have gone and, oh, they were so great and why can't, it, you know, why can't I have them again or whatever, but instead seeing this year as a gift 
and thanking him for the gift that he has ahead. That draws me closer to his heart and alongside that will cultivate gifts of the spirit within me. So I don't really know what that might look like exactly this year. Um, I'll probably write them in my journal. Colin, since I told him, has already been asking me every day, what are you thankful for, de- for today? It's great. It's like a little voice in your head. Um, maybe it will look like just being intentional about vocalizing that to the people around me. I'm really thankful for you because of this. Thank you so much for how you do this. Year. I'm really grateful for this and trying to cultivate that gratitude in my life. I'd really encourage you at some point over the next week or two to just take some time out. Maybe it's a retreat. I don't know if you've ever gone on a retreat before. Um, Maybe taking yourself off for a day or even just a morning or a couple of hours. Go and walk around your local park, grab a coffee, take your journal if you journal, and just take some time to ask the Lord, what are the things in the past year that you want to highlight to me? What are the things for this year that you want to speak over me? What might you want to do in my life this year? What might you be calling me to? What dreams might you want to give me? And you might be coming to the KXC weekend away this weekend. What a perfect opportunity. We'll be out in the countryside. We'll have some space. You'll be able to be in the spa, maybe spend some time with God in the sauna or in the steam room or whatever. He speaks in all places. Um, But take that time. Take stock. Make space. Stop. Ask God to develop and grow expectancy in you, to raise your faith levels for all that he might want to do. Bring those things to him that you have in your heart for this year. Surrender them to him. Ask him to bless them, to speak into those things. The verse I've had on my heart over the past couple of weeks is Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. And it says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. That is our God. He can do immeasurably more than you and I could ever ask or imagine. He has good plans for this year. I don't know what your last year looked like. Maybe there are disappointments. Maybe there are joys. But one thing I can promise you is that he is good. And that he is on the move and he wants to do some incredible things this year, both in your life, but also in our life as a church. He wants to do incredible things in London. He wants to do incredible things in your workplace, in your university. Are we expecting him to? Do we have the eyes to see all that he might be doing? He's always working. He asks us to lift our eyes and to expect him to be moving and speaking and to join in with all that he's doing. In that verse, it talks about the power, power at work within us. His power, resurrection power at work within you. Are you aware of that? He's completely trustworthy for the adventure ahead. His reality is wild and exciting. And he calls us to expect things of him. To be open to him, be open to his spirit. But he calls us close. He calls us to see him again. He calls us to follow the star, to follow his voice and to find him in that place to be filled with joy and to bow down and to worship him.